Give us wisdom. Give us a teachable spirit to lay hold of this difficult but comforting and biblical teaching that we are about to encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Romans. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 through 13. You there see at your notes, I choose you. I choose you. Those words can be ones of great joy or sheer terror. Is that, tr- is that not true? I choose you. Why? I choose you can be words that fulfill your every hope and dream when it's the one you love is saying them and doing the choosing. Think back when you were getting married, uh, when, when your husband uh, said, will you marry me? What is he saying? I choose you. And if you said yes, his choosing of you should have been a great you know, moment, right? And obviously, when you said yes, uh, that was you choosing him. And so that's a great example. Let me use another example. Rick and Diana, they just got back from a baseball fantasy camp hanging out with uh, Rick's new best friend is George Brett. You know, you would think him and George have gone way back. So they had a great week, right? And the thing that Rick had the greatest fun with, and and I would have had too, I mean, I would think this is really awesome, is that uh, uh, Brett traded for Rick to be on his fantasy team. Okay, can you imagine that? You know, is that cool, Kirk? And he writes out the contract. Now, Rick has, you know, Rick has shown me that. He's told me, that, hey, have I told you about that? And I'm just like, yeah, 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 but that's all right. And then he goes ahead and tells me anyway. So you've told me at least three times. He has a picture of it that he carries around. But it's so cool. Written by Brett, signed by Brett. Now, what makes that significant? Well, basically, what did Brett say to you? I choose you. I mean, this Hall of Famer, this uh, uh, hitting champ, I choose you. Now, how cool is that? That was pretty awesome. But I choose you can be words that shatter your every dream and eliminate any hope for life when it's the commandant of a concentration camp saying these same words and doing the choosing. So I choose you can be really great or it can be what? It can be really bad. Now, what makes the difference? What makes the difference is who's doing the choosing. Am I right? You know, if it, you know, if I tell uh, Rick, hey, I want you on my team. He, he's not going to tell you about that. He's not going to take pictures of that. Am I right? You know, but Brett tells you he's going to put you. You're going to tell. Why? Who is doing the choosing? Are they loving and kind or are they hateful and vengeful? Is it a human, sinful person prone to mistakes that's choosing you? Or is it someone who is divine, holy, and filled with perfection? It matters who is doing the choosing? Secondly, it matters how they're doing the choosing. Now, if Brett had chose Rick simply by covering his eyes and going down the list and happened to hit Rick, would you have been as thrilled? No, not at all. Now, you'd been glad, but you, it wouldn't have meant the same. You know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe and, and, and throwing dice and just uh, flippantly choosing someone does not, is not the same as when it's done according to a divine plan, with perfect wisdom, holy justice, undeserving mercy, and with eternal love. The fact that Rick had built a relationship, or had a relationship, or or let me say it even this way, the fact that George wanted to have a relationship and wanted to have that kind of uh, time with him made all the difference in the world. Thirdly, it matters why they are doing the choosing. 
Is it for death, like at a concentration camp? Is it for life? Is it for judgment? Is it for salvation? Is it for eternal separation from God or eternal relationship? So when, when someone says, I choose you, who's saying it, how they decide, and why they are doing it is of utmost importance. This morning's lesson from Romans 9, 6 through 13, is all about God saying, I choose you. It's all about unconditional election. The theological, the doctrinal, the biblical term is unconditional election. Let's read Romans 9, 6 through 13. Romans 9, 6 through 13. So I want you, you need to have your Bibles open. This is uh, very intense stuff. Uh, and, And I will say this at the beginning. It's easy to preach through Romans 9 if you just take a real surface, you know, and just principalize it and just move through it. And and you don't deal with the intricacies of Paul's arguments. We're going to take the approach of going through and looking at those intricacies because that's exactly what Paul does. It's very tightly. It's very reasoned. We're going to move through it that way. There's application to be had in this. But here's the thing. Too often we rush to thinking we know what something means and trying to apply it before we what? Really understand what God has said. And so that's what we're trying to do. Notice what it says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now that's what covers the whole rest of Romans 9 through 11. That's the issue. We've been setting that up for weeks. The idea is the word of God has not failed. It has not been frustrated by the rejection of the nation of Israel. It has not failed. Now he's going to explain why. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named or called. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted or reckoned as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca, Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose, and there it is, of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. For this reason, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, That word election is the key to everything in that passage. It's really the key to everything that flows out of uh, Romans 9 through 11. So let's look at that. I just gave you a little bit of background. Election is a biblical term. We just saw it in the Bible. It's the, and its basic idea is the idea of choosing out. The ek in in, in the, it's a Greek word that begins with ek. It means out of, choosing out of. You're selecting someone. You're calling someone out. You're choosing them. It simply means choice. That's just, it just, just means to choose. And when God elects, when God elects a person to be saved, he's choosing them to be saved, to be called, to be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. He is also choosing them to be sanctified, glorified, and to live in his glorious presence for all eternity as his very own beloved child. You say, where do you get all that? Turn back to Romans 8. 
Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Remember, we said Romans 9 is flowing out of Romans 8. And so let's look. Here is where what election, uh, here, here's just the big picture of it. Notice what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, for who? For those who are called according to his purpose. There's a great definition of election. Those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that they may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So election is laid out for us. When God chooses us, it's not just eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and it's for a specific purpose. And that purpose is not just salvation, it's sanctification, it's glorification, it's all the riches of knowing him and becoming like his son. It's also taught in various places in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple. You can look at these references. I just want you to see that This isn't just Romans 9. This isn't just one place in the Bible. It's throughout the Bible. For instance, Jesus himself in Matthew 22, 14 says these words. For many are called, but few are chosen. So many aren't called. Many are invited to be saved, but few are chosen to be saved. Look at Acts 13, 48. Look at this one. Acts 13, 48. Turn your Bibles. Acts 13.48. While the word is not used there, the idea is very much illustrated. Notice what it says in Acts 13.48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I like that verse for several reasons. First of all, it shows that being chosen by God for salvation doesn't eliminate the need to hear the gospel or the human responsibility to believe it. Do you see that? As many were appointed, believed. Well, what did they believe? The gospel that was preached to them. So, and, and they were rejoicing in the word of the Lord, glorifying the word of the Lord. The gospel's preached, but the fact of the matter is, as many as were appointed, no more, no less, believed. So there it is in Acts. Of course, the classic passage for it is Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 1, and let's look at 4 through 6. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Take a look at Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Here Paul says, Even as he chose us, that is God, In him, that is Christ, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? Why did he do it? What was the basis? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, which he has blessed us in with which, I'm sorry, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, just through these few verses that we've looked at, we've seen who is doing the choosing and the determining according to these verses. 
God is doing, God is the one choosing. And it's one who is described in various ways as being holy, just, merciful, gracious, compassion, uh, just all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. I mean, the one doing the choosing is not George Brett. Can we say an amen? Okay? And that's not because he's any worse than any of the rest of us. It's not anyone like us for which we can be thankful. Second, we see why they're doing the choosing. Uh, Romans 8, 28, Ephesians 1, why is the choosing being done? It's to accomplish and secure our salvation, all facets of it. Not just the belief, but also the redemption, the regeneration, the justification, the sanctity, the whole package. The whole, this is where our security lies in, is that God is, has secured our salvation. If you believe in eternal security, then you believe in the sovereignty of God because it's God that keeps us, not us, right? All right. But how does he do it? How does he do it? On what is the basis that God has chosen us for salvation or chosen some of the, uh, uh, out of the all for salvation? Does he do it because we first choose him? Does God choose us because he sees that we or knows that we are going to choose him? Or does God choose us so that we will choose him? Does it depend on God and his holy character or does it depend on people, who they are and what they do and what they believe? Well, that question is answered for us in Romans 6 through 13. It begins to answer these kinds of questions. So what we see, and and I'm giving you the answer before we go through it, because these things are complex, they're difficult, and uh, I just want to get some concepts in your head before we get into the details. And here's the answer. What's the basis? The basis he chooses is solely according to his character and his purpose. It has nothing to do with us. Therefore, it's called unconditional election. His choice is not conditioned on who you are, who I am, or what we do. He doesn't choose us because we first chose him. Hey, God, I think you're great. Save me. Okay, I'll elect you. That's not how it works. It's unconditional. Unconditional election. God's choosing undeserving sinners for salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very quickly, I want to give you, uh, let's read through Romans 9 and Romans 11, several passages that that will show you biblically this is unconditional election. Okay, so let's begin. Let's look at verse 11. We already read that once, but let's read it again. Romans 9, let's look at verse 11. And, and, and this is the key verse. Notice what it says. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Could it be said any clearer? They're not even born. They certainly haven't done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of what was the basis, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Look at verse 16. Next week, he's going to say it again. Look at verse 16. Or let's look at 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I think is worthy of it. On whom what? I have mercy. I will have compassion on those that I think are going to be prone to believe in me. Or what? On who? On whom I have compassion. 
So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Literally, the Greeks there says, not of him who wills it or runs for it. Not of him who chooses it or works hard to get it. But on God who has mercy. So we've already seen God is the one who calls. God is the one who has mercy. Now let's jump over to 22 and 24. He's going to say it again, 22 through 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order, why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Notice, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. One last, uh, uh, chapter 11, 5 through 7. Chapter 11, 5 through 7. He picks up the argument again, and he says this, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, elect, chosen. How? By grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, if it was on the basis of anything that we did, or anything that we're worthy of, then it would no longer be grace, it would be what? Works, something that we earn, something that we deserve, something that we were worthy of. There is biblical teaching and biblical uh, uh, revelation of unconditional election. Now, I've given you a couple explanations, and we'll just read the simple one-sentence one. You can look at the more uh, in-depth one that you have there in your notes that kind of covers everything. Uh, Both are biblical. Here it is. God elects individual persons to salvation regardless of any conditions of will, not of him who wills, effort, not of him who runs, desire or ability. He is absolutely free to save whoever he so desires, and he is absolutely just in his right. Now, there's a great, simple, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying uh, our flesh doesn't rise up and say, I don't like that. Uh, Paul anticipates that. I anticipate that. Uh, I have had to deal with this. And now you get to deal with it. We get to deal with it together. And again, who is doing all this? A loving, just, righteous, holy God. The God that you're trusting for, for your salvation. Now, the crucial, the crucial question that's being answered in Romans 9 through 11 is that one back in Romans uh, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. The crucial question here. That is being answered is, has God's word, his saving promise to Israel, has it failed in light of the fact that so many Jews have rejected Christ and are doomed to eternal punishment? In other words, has the massive unbelief of the people of Israel in not only rejecting their Messiah, but crucifying him, has that frustrated and caused God's purposes and promises to get off track? The word literally means failed, means a ship steering off course. I mean, if you, from a Jewish perspective, looking at what happened, uh, you would wonder, wow, I thought the Old Testament was all about God's people, the Jews, accepting their Messiah. Now he came, and now they're rejected, and they're set on the side. Has God's word gotten all off track? Well, here's the answer. And by the way, that means this, uh, keep in mind that this is connected to Romans 8. Why? Because if God can make all these promises to Israel and not fulfill them, 
then what makes us think that he can make the same promises to us in Romans 8? What makes us think that he will keep them to us? So this is very practical stuff. It's very personal stuff. It's very real. Now, how does the answer unfold? The rest of Romans 9 is this tightly argument, and and, and it builds on four questions. And each question builds off the one before it. And so we're going to deal with question one, at least partially, today. Here's the first question. It's found in verse 6. Has God's word failed? Well, the answer to that is no. We're going to see that God's promise of salvation is rooted in God's sovereign, unconditional choice. That's the answer. That raises a new question. And you probably are already thinking about this question. The second question is, well, wait a minute. Is God unfair in choosing unconditionally? Has that question already come up in your mind? Is this a little unfair? Is this right? This just doesn't seem to be right. We need to balance this. And so he he raises that question in verse 14. And he proceeds to answer it. No, unconditional election reflects the perfect, uh, the perfect, uh, I should have put the perfection of God's character in all its fullness. But then that raises a third question. And you've probably already gone to that point. Well, wait a minute. If God is sovereign, is he unjust to hold us accountable for our choices? If all this is rooted in his choice, then why do my choices still matter? And isn't God the one that's responsible for not only who gets saved, but who rejects Christ? I mean, how, how do I have any responsibility in this? Well, that answer is found in 19 through 29. The answer is, no, he's not unjust. And oh, by the way, who are we to question God? Unconditional election reveals the riches of God's mercy against the backdrop of the long-suffering of His wrath. Well, then that brings us finally, having done those two objections, which are going to be in our hearts, it's going to be in our minds. He then deals with the final question, what should we conclude from all this? And here's his answer. And this will give you hope as we move through these next two weeks, three weeks. Unconditional election results... In God's saving promises being fulfilled by grace through faith in Christ without eliminating human responsibility. You say, that is humanly impossible. And you would be correct. But we're not talking about a human planning salvation. That which is impossible with men is possible with God. And this is a mystery. How is it that God can choose us to be saved so that we choose him and yet we're still responsible for our choices and the lost are responsible for their rejection? How can that be? It's a mystery. But you've got to work through 9 and 10 to get through that conclusion in 11. So I have in your notes, remember, the question is being answered from a god centered perspective the question is being answered from a god-centered perspective and not a man-centered one now i'm telling you this in these next few weeks that we go through this and as you read and i hope you're reading through romans 9 if you come through to romans 9 with a man or a human centered perspective you're going to come to the wrong conclusions and the wrong conclusions are the four questions that i just laid out for you 
You're going to come to the conclusion that God's word can fail because sinners can frustrate the purposes of God. You're going to come to the wrong conclusion that God is unjust in how he saved the some and does not save others. You're going to come to the wrong conclusion that God is responsible for people's sin and their choices and not us. And you're going to come to the conclusion that God's sovereignty is not compatible with human responsibility and you're going to fall into the ditch on one of two sides. You're either going to be so much about God's sovereignty that there's no room for our responsibility or you're going to be so much about God's uh, human responsibility that you shrink your God to being one who depends on us to accomplish his purpose. Now. What's at stake here? I'd say there's three things at stake. Some interpreters, some scholars, some pastors, some Bible teachers will disagree with me on this. That's all right. Okay? I'll show you from the scriptures why I think these three points are true. And I'm already seeing this is all we're going to do. I didn't want it to be this way. I wished it otherwise, but this is all we're going to do. Which is good, because next week I preach, teach, get ready for world outreach. So, I'm telling you, I, my wife can tell you, I, I've, been, I've, I've been working on this. And uh, I sat there for seven hours yesterday. I'm not trying to get your sympathy. I'm just saying, this stuff's hard. I've got this little pea-sized brain that is filled with a fallen human nature. I'm trying to comprehend the mysteries of God in a way that I can communicate them to you that is true to Scripture, and yet you can walk away and say, you know, I understood what he said. (laughs) That's always important when you're teaching. There's people that disagree with this. The way I'm going to present it to you. But I don't come to it with an agenda. Um, taking a lot of years studying, reading, reading scripture. I think if you will join us as we yearly do reading through the Bible in 90 days, it will help you to see these things because you see God's big picture as it works out in history and you're like, wow, there's a pattern here. Okay? And. There is a, well, let me read this quote to you. I thought this was. In assessing the issue of election, we must be careful not to read into Scripture our own presuppositions and biases. And then this, this, this Bible scholar said this. The question of individual election, which I've now presented to you and told you that this is the topic, has led more people to read Scripture for what they want to find rather than listen to Scripture for what they are afraid to hear. Can I say that one more time? The question of election has led more people to read Scripture for what they want to find, rather than to listen to Scripture for what what they are afraid to hear, than virtually any other theological issue. That's why I've spent a tremendous amount of time 
So I want to make sure of two things. One, I'm not reading in my biases. I'm not reading my my presuppositions. But you know what I'm more struggling with? Is hearing and reading what I'm afraid is actually there. And I'll be honest with you, not because I am afraid to embrace it. It's because I have to stand up here and communicate it. And if you don't like what God's saying in this, you're not only going to be mad at God, who else are you going to be mad at? Yeah, yeah. But that's the burden, and that's the responsibility of being a man of God, a messenger of the word. The prophets had it. Pastors have it. It's just a part of the process. All right? And I'm not saying that where I'm at is where I'm going to be fully. You know, I mean, here's my goal. My goal, and that's why we're going through it in detail, is I have to first understand it to make it more simple to you. And so I'm not really at that point yet. I'm at a point where I just got to struggle with it, and I'm going to take you through that struggle. So having said all that, that's enough disclaimer. Having said all that, what's at stake as we look at these passages? Well, here's what happens. Some people say that these these chapters, specifically the ones I just read and the one that we'll get to in a couple weeks, is not really about eternal salvation. So that's the first point. What's at stake? Eternal salvation and not just Israel's status or role as God's chosen people. You see, the question becomes this. Oh, hey, somebody said good morning. Um, They say that Romans 9 through 11 is not about one's relationship to God. It's not about salvation. What it is really about is the roles that individuals and nations play for God in history. So it's not about salvation. It's more about historic roles. Does that make In other words, God's choosing Israel, and now he's not using Israel. He's using the church. It's not about individual. He's not choosing individual people, Jacob, not Esau, Isaac, not Ishmael, Moses, not Pharaoh. It's not about the individuals. It's about Israel, Egypt, Edom. All right? Now, why would you do that? Why Why would you want it to be just about this? And not about this. What? Yeah, exactly. It pushes these. Okay, I can handle God choosing Israel and not choosing Israel. You know, I can handle God choosing Israel and not choosing Egypt. What is Egypt to me? So see, now I'm not saying people who hold this position are doing it for those reasons. But... The temptation, as you read through there, is to push this away from the individual aspect. Now, can that is that is that true? Is that justified by what we see here? Well, first of all, let me give you three reasons why I think this is about... By the way, it's about both, which so much of God's Word is. It's about both and. Why? Because when you choose an Abraham, what have you just also chosen? Israel. And when you reject Esau, who is the father of the Edomites, what have you all, you know, their destiny is tied to an individual. Just ask Apple Computer. Who died this week? Steve Jobs. What is now in question? A total corporation. 
Why? Because one individual impacts an entire community. In this case, one man impacted the entire world. Definitely the lives of Randy and I. Am I right? I'm, I'm concerned. So you can't separate them. When I say Saddam Hussein, what country do you think of? Iraq. Ask an Iraqi if one man's choices didn't determine the destiny of a nation, right? And when you think of Iraq, who did you think of? Saddam Hussein. So I say it's both hands. Let me give you three reasons why, okay? Reason number one was last week's lesson. Reason number one was like Romans 9, 1 through 6. What is Paul concerned about in Romans 9, 1 through 6? Is he, con- is he ready to go to hell because Israel as a nation is no longer at the center point of God's historic purposes? You tell me the answer. Do you think, do you think Romans 9, 1 through 6 are telling you, I wish I could be, if it was possible, cut off from hell because God is no longer working through Israel. He's working through the church. He's saying this, in rejecting the nation, there is also a multitude of my Jewish people, individuals who are rejecting Christ, who are going to hell. I am concerned for both these things because there there is a relation. I am concerned for individual Jews that are going to hell. So I think 9, 1 through 6 is crucial. That's why I had a whole lesson to lead up to it. The second reason is, in verses 6 through 13, as we'll see next week, he uses words like called or named. He uses words like children of God. Do you realize every time Paul uses children of God in the New Testament, every time it refers to individual salvation? Do you realize that every time he says children of promise, Galatians 4 is an example, it refers to individual salvation. So if he's talking about nations, it's very odd that he's using this whole set of words. And by the way, they're words that he just used in Romans 8 to talk about your individual salvation and mine. That's the second reason, the words that he used. The third reason is Romans 10 follows Romans 9. And look at Romans 10.1. Look back at Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be what? Saved. Now, are we really thinking that all he's praying for is that Israel would once again be at the center of God? He is praying that, but what's, he, what's, what's at the core of that? That they would be saved. And how do we know that? The rest of Romans 10 is about what? Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, that's not about historic roles and destinies. He's talking about individuals as well as roles. Secondly, so eternal salvation is the issue. We wish it wasn't. We'd like to push it out farther. But in a, listen, in a real way, don't wish that it wasn't. Because it's your eternal security rests on God's gracious choice in Christ. This isn't something you want to wish away unless you want to wish away your salvation. Secondly, individual salvation, not just the destiny of nations. Individual salvation, not just the destiny of nations. So, when it says, and we'll look at this next week, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's a hard word. That's a hard. That's a hard message. And we will go to all sorts of links to try to soften that, and get God off the hook, 
And why do we think we need God off the hook? Because our conception and understanding of God is he wouldn't say that. But there he said it. And Paul says, as it is written, he says it. And it's the conclusion of this whole section. As it is written. Period. Next objection. That's not fair. Okay, we will deal with that. So, is he just talking about, when he says Esau, hating Esau, is he really just talking about the nation of Edom? And when he says he loves Jacob, is he just talking about the nation of Israel out there? Well, here's why I think not. Number one, he mentions individuals all the way through this passage. Could he have said, Israel I loved and Edom I hated? Yes. Could he have said, I'll show mercy to Israel and I will show uh, my wrath to Egypt? Yes. But did he say it? What does he say? Moses, Pharaoh. Isaac, Ishmael. Jacob, Esau. You see, if he had just said nations, you could eliminate, you know, you could then say it was only about nations. But by using individuals, you say, oh, he's saying he can say both and. Because individuals influence the destiny of nations. Are you with me? Secondly, Romans 9, 6, again, goes back to say that Paul is talking about individuals. It's individuals who are cursed and cut off from Christ. So Romans 9, 1 through 6 is really important. Also, look at Romans 9, 15 through 16. Look at 15 through 16. This is very important. Here he says to Moses, I will have mercy, and notice the next two words, I will have mercy on whom? That is singular. That's singular. I will have mercy on singular individuals, and I on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have mercy compassion and then drop down to verse 16 so then it depends not on human will or exertion that's what it says in esv literally it says on him who wills or runs individual so if he was wanting to talk about nations and corporate people what what would he have been saying what would he have been using the plural and then when you go to romans 10 it it comes out again Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, everyone, every individual who calls on the name of the Lord, he doesn't say, and whole nations don't get saved. Are you right? I mean, whole nations don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in that way, except actually Israel will. But when a whole nation does, how does it do it? Every individual does it. Okay, so what's at stake? Individual, eternal salvation of individuals, and number three, the salvation of all peoples not just the salvation of the nation of Israel. The salvation of all peoples and not just the salvation of individuals. You say, why does this all matter? And what does this have to do with missions? Well, it's very cool. And the answer is found in the number one reason, the number one reason why he says God's word has not failed. Look again at verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel, who are physical 
confused. Are Israel, the true Israel, the true people of God? See? So, even though the vast majority have rejected Christ, God's word has not failed because not all who are descended, physical, genetic Jews, you know, genetics, DNA, are actually true spiritual Israel. See, salvation is for all peoples, not just the nation of Israel. You see, God is free to limit salvation, and God is free to expand salvation to whomever he will. We should be glad for unconditional election, for it's on the basis of unconditional election that you and I are born again not because you were born a Jewish person. You see, if it was based on your birth, any, how many people are Jewish here? How many people would be going to heaven? No. Now, I mean, if it was dependent on birth, if it was dependent on being a physical Jew, how many of us would be going to heaven? Nobody. So, it's pretty cool that God expanded that. Amen? And yet, in saying it wasn't physical birth, what did he just do for the majority of Jews? He just limited salvation to those who believe. Here's the point. It doesn't matter how hard... Amsterdam is. It doesn't matter how forsaken Mongolia may seem. It doesn't matter how hardened to Islam Pakistan is. It doesn't matter uh, that the Philippines has been predominantly Catholic for centuries. It doesn't matter that New England is bent, burnt over with the gospel. It does not matter because ultimately the salvation of people in these countries, in these areas, does not depend on their hard hearts choosing Christ. What it depends on is God's unconditional election that is able to limit and expand salvation according to His perfect character. Therefore, we can encourage these families. You are going, and just as in the book of Acts, there are those who are appointed to eternal life who will believe. But what do they need to hear? They need to hear the gospel. They need to be given the chance to believe. But they can go with all the confidence in the world that a sovereign God is fulfilling his purposes and his elect people will come to the surface. They will be saved. They will be recognized through the preaching of the gospel. Is that not encouraging? All right. Well, we will see. We will develop 6 through 13. I'm going to give you three reasons why God's word has not failed. 
And the answer is this. It does not depend on us or anyone. It depends on God. Because it depends on God, it will not fail. It is not off course. The only thing, you know, you and I need to be worried about the Word of God is not God getting off course, but it's who? You and I getting off course. And the way to prevent that is to be responsible and stay in His Word. So let me encourage you to do this. Read Romans 9. Read Romans 9. The reading is on the back of the uh, of the lesson sheet. Read that. We'll be set to go and to conquer that. And I have no problem with you emailing me questions. I have no problem with you asking questions. I have no problem with you if you want to write them down, if you want to ask them afterwards, if you even want to ask them during. I don't mind. You ought to have questions. Paul recognizes that and deals with them. It's okay to have questions. All right? It's okay to disagree, but let's dis- disagree based on what the Word says in all of the Bible, not just what we want it to Make sense? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, your ways are not our ways, that's for sure. And your thinking is way beyond our thinking. Your purposes are way beyond our purposes. We're very narrow and limited in our thoughts. And to be quite honest, we're very focused on ourselves. So, Father, we, we need you to help us weeks ahead. And I hope this has helped us already to understand, wow, there's some aspects of God and his purposes and my salvation that are way beyond what we would ever come up with. That's because it's from you. And, Father, you have limited and expanded salvation according to your perfect love, wisdom. We're just glad, Lord. The gospel was preached through your electing love. We responded. That Lord, now we have the opportunity to share that good news, share that gospel, all the peoples of the world. Lord, I pray we'd commit fresh and anew again. Support these missionaries that are coming. I thank you for these people and their giving, their loving, worshiping, sharing of the gospel. May we do it more, do it with the confidence that your purposes will be fulfilled and your word does not falter or veer off. It's with great confidence.